Hey, Murder's Night Out listeners, this is Anna. Never miss an episode of Murder's Night Out by following us and listening to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or anywhere you get your podcasts. Also, you can follow us on Instagram at Murder's Night Out or follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash MNO True Crime Podcast. Thanks for listening. And it's a beautiful Sunday afternoon, and we are back. I'm Anna. Sunday night. Oh, yeah, I guess it's Sunday night. (laughs) (laughs) But we're back. We're here. I'm Anna. And I'm Emily. And this is your favorite voices of Murder's Night Out. So thanks for joining us again. Um, Emily. How are you feeling tonight? I'm good. My back hurts. Your back hurts. <laughs> I just got off work, uh, working two twelves in a row, and I'm exhausted. So yeah, yeah, I got to go to work. Actually, I got to work from home tomorrow because the kids' daycare is closed. So that's going to be fun trying to work from home with a bunch of crazy kids. Yeah, I'm. Hmm, I'm gonna be home with them t- tomorrow too. So no worries. <laughs> oh well, that's true. I'm off tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, lucky you. Rub it in my face. I apologize if y'all hear my dogs barking in the background. They have no manners. So, but anyways, we just want to thank everybody again. Because, man, you know, we're getting a lot of love and support. And just, wow. Yeah. Yeah. I'm blown away. Uh-huh. Um, We blown need to. Away. <laughs> Sorry. Look, y'all. It's late and we're tired. Well, I'm going to tell you, I, I have showed Anna this song that is stuck in my head and I cannot get it out of my head. Um, That song I just showed you, Dumb Ways to Die. I'm telling Dumb you. video to watch. <laughs> yeah, you'll have to YouTube it. It's pretty funny and I can't get it. I can't get it out of my head. Oh, yeah. Well, um, so I guess... Today is an Anna case. Well, me. I'm using third person. And it's another one from Memphis. And it's an unsolved missing person. Yay. I really... No, it's not a yay. No, not yay. Not a yay. But I mean, like, yay, I'm excited that we're doing this episode to put her name out there to bring some awareness. Hopefully get some closure for the family. Not, Not yay because she's missing, obviously. Well... I'm excited that we're we're doing this episode. We can put her name out there because, I mean, I when you told me about the case, of course, I kind of looked into it a little bit. And there's actually a Facebook page. Yes. So. Yes. And so some of my references come from there, too. Yeah. But uh, with that being said, I guess we'll just dive on into this case. So today's case takes place in Memphis slash Bartlett, Tennessee. It is the case of missing Dr. Cheryl Lamont Pearson. She was last seen on January the 5th, 2002, approximately 1 a.m. She had just returned home from a Grizzly game and she was entertaining a few female friends afterwards. And that was the last time she was ever seen. 
Have you heard of this case? Oh, well. I have heard. Yeah. And again, when you brought her name up, I looked into it and I was like, oh yeah, I remember when, when she was on the news and, mm-hmm. but I didn't really dive deep into it. So I'm, I'm excited to hear what, you know, okay, well, the surrounding details. Well, that, and hopefully maybe we can bring some awareness, know, some more and, awareness yeah. to it because this case has, you know, been going on for a while. Right. And I'm not giving any spoiler alerts, so we'll just jump right into who is Dr. Cheryl Lamont Pearson. Dr. Cheryl Pearson was born August the 21st, 1964. Her parents were Leon and Hazel Pearson, and Cheryl was the youngest of three children. She, let me tell you, this woman's a badass. I'm just going to go ahead and say it. Uh, She graduated from Jackson Central Mary High School in 1982 in Jackson, Tennessee. Uh, She then went on to uh, obtain a degree in chemical engineering from the University of Tennessee in 1987. And then she switched her focus and went on to earn a medical degree from Meharry Medical College in Nashville, Tennessee in the early 90s. Can I just say... In the early 90s, so this is a, a black woman who has went and got her degree, mm-hmm. uh, well, not only got one degree or started getting one degree, but jumped into her medical degree. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. This that's is, a lot of. Yeah, that's a that's an incredible thing to hear because, you know, in the 80s, 90s, um, I mean, they're women in general like mm-hmm. you you don't see them as medical doctors at this point and just to see that it's incredible but anyways oh, continue for sure for sure and later you know i'll go into you know some what you know some of what the family said you know they talked about how she was caring she was just an absolute go-getter and obviously we can obviously see that. yeah um anyways back to she she graduated from you know, medical school in the early 90s. And then later on, in later in the 90s, she ends up moving to Memphis to become a pediatrician. Aww. Yes. She, her pediatrician experience began at the Raleigh Group practice out of Labonner Children's Hospital. For, yeah. There, I mean, I, I've heard a lot of things about the mm-hmm. Raleigh Group. Yeah. And, you know, fa- like I was saying earlier, friends and family uh, described her as a go-getter, friendly and compassionate with no known enemies. They didn't know who would, who would want to hurt her really. Uh, Her colleagues said that she was an excellent doctor who truly cared about her patients. And that really matters. It really does. Um, I really like the doctors that are very thorough and have good bedside manner because that's important, especially when, you know, down here in the South, because we like to talk. Absolutely. So the timeline surrounding her disappearance is it's pretty simple, but kind of eerie at the same time. So on January the 4th, 2002, uh, Cheryl, around 8 p.m., she attends the Grizzly game. And she attends it alone, which is not unusual because she was a season ticket holder. She's used to attending the game alone. Um, and the Grizz game was at the Pyramid at the time, you know, back in the day when the Pyramid was. Before it was Bass Pro. Before it was Bass Pro. Yeah. Anyways. We t- have Memphis Wrestling there. Oh, yeah. They had <laughs> concerts there, too. Yeah. No. It was basically the forum before the forum. Yeah. Um, so her attending it alone was nothing new. 
uh, sometime that evening, it doesn't really specify a time, she had called her mom during the game to tell her she was feeling lightheaded and weak. Important to note, Dr. Cheryl suffered from type 1 diabetes, something Aww, I know that you It's very have, close to home. It is very close to Aww, home. I, I did not realize that. Yes. So she had Aww. called her mom to let her know she was feeling lightheaded and weak. But because of the type 1, she, she reassured her mom that it was nothing to worry about um, and just, you know, kept trying to reassure her because she figured her mom would be overly concerned. Yeah. Uh, understandably yeah, so. Obviously. And, you know, she's alone downtown at a game. And anyways. Yeah. I know, like, for her to not only be a woman, but to, like, have type 1 diabetes. and I know, and, and overcome so much. And overcome so much because it is so difficult. And, you know, um, I've worked in an endocrine clinic before. Mm -hmm. My oldest is type one. And so this really does hit home because, you know, yeah, because, you know, with, with him, I, uh, basically, you know, I tell him he can do anything he wants to do. Absolutely. And And I advocate for him. Right. I advocate for him on a daily basis and Mm -hmm. he advocates for himself. I mean, being 10 years old, I mean, he is so strong Mm -hmm. anyway. Sorry. Continue. No, you're good. (laughs) Um, so she can, she finishes the game and after the game, and this was around 1030, Cheryl decides to head home. You know, as I mentioned before, she had had plans of hanging out with two of her friends, a woman by the name of Andrea Fox and another, which was unidentified. So I don't really know her name, but they had planned on hanging out at Cheryl's house for a couple of hours. Uh, so around, you know, they're hanging out, you know, having some girl time. Like we do. Maybe they were having true crime and. Wine or true crime and moonshine. True crime and TM, moonshine. Trademark. Yeah, sorry. trademark that bitch. <laughs> anyway, sorry guys. Um, so after hanging out around 1 a.m. on the 5th, Andrea said her and her friend left. Uh, Cheryl had ended up calling in a night because she had plans to watch her sister's kids early that morning on the 5th. And they were supposed to be dropped off around 7 a.m., understandable i call it a night after a certain time because yeah once my social social talking and and you know communicating and i don't know all the words to describe it but when i'm done i'm done but i was actually uh explaining this to a friend the other day about how i'm an introverted extrovert if that makes sense like there are certain times where I'm like, I'll just talk, talk, talk. And then once I'm done, I'm done. Like, well, yeah, we're both that way though. That's true. Like. That's true. But she had to be up early and cause she was watch her, her niece and nephew, uh, were supposed to be dropped off around 7am. It was 1am in the morning. I would have gone to bed. Oh yeah. I would have been to bed too. <laughs> you can't function. Well, later when these two friends were questioned by the police, Um, they both said that Cheryl seemed to be perfectly fine and did not believe that Cheryl would have made any other plans that night, given the fact that it was 1 a.m. She had to be up at 7 a.m. Yeah. Understandable. I would assume the same. Yeah. So during this questioning, like I said, they said that they didn't think Cheryl went anywhere else because, or made any other plans because she had plans to be up at 7 a.m. Now, interesting to note Later, after Cheryl was reported missing, her phone records were pulled by the police. 
And the records indicated that she had received a phone call around 1.58 a.m. that morning and that it was received and answered. It Through tracing, they found out it was from a nearby payphone at a Sitco gas station uh, about a mile away from her house. Now, this phone call, depending on the source, says it lasted anywhere from five seconds to two minutes. So that's a little eerie. That is eerie. It is eerie. Ha- okay. So, however, on at 7, a- 7 a.m. came, and this was on January the 5th, 2002, her sister, Lorinda Hildreth, arrived at Cheryl's home. She immediately noticed that Cheryl's car was not there and neither was Cheryl. So given that, you know, Cheryl was suffering from type one, obviously she was concerned about her sister. And I think in one interview, she said that her sister would never just up and just leave and not let notify anybody. So this was obviously very concerning. And so her sister immediately calls her parents who were still in Jackson, Tennessee and then calls the Bartlett PD to notify that Cheryl is missing. Uh, parents, Her parents immediately drove from Jackson to Bartlett to help look for Cheryl. Yeah. Obviously, like yeah. any parent would do. And Jackson to Bartlett's like, what, maybe an hour and a half, two hours? I don't even think it's that far. Yeah. It's like an hour from my house. So maybe an hour and 20 minutes. Something Just like that. Edit that out. <laughs> <laughs> um. Okay, so on January the 5th, uh, Cheryl's parents arrive at Cheryl's home. They're coming to help look. They're concerned. They had a spare key to her house, so they decided to enter the home and, you know, see if anything's amiss or amok. Yeah, amok, 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 amok. Sorry, squirrel. Which, you know, I would do that too, like any parent, like, Right. You know, you're exactly. not thinking, you're not thinking anything bad has happened at this point. You're going to enter the home trying to see if, you know, you can figure anything out, see what's going on, that kind of thing. Um, so once they entered the home, they discovered that Cheryl's cell phone and pager were on the dining room table and that she had left her life-saving medication behind as well. Insulin, in case you're wondering. Yeah. So. Or glucagon. It just depends on how you how you look at that. Nurse Emily in here with the facts. I'm just saying, because if her blood sugar dropped too low, her life-saving medication would have been glucagon. But if her blood sugar is too high, she needs insulin because she's type 1. She needs insulin to survive. You cannot just leave. Trust me, when we go on vacation and we leave the house, I can't tell you how much stuff I have to pack up and mm. make sure I remember. I mean, just by coming over here with Nicholas, I have to make sure he has his bag, which includes um, extra supplies and right. and snacks and sugar and what not anyways just just so you know like this is this is an important thing with the type one like you don't just leave your stuff right exactly so seeing all of this you know at first they didn't think anything you know you don't want to automatically jump to something bad happening so they thought maybe you know maybe it was a medical emergency or an accident of some sort um they were filled obviously filled with nervous energy And while they were waiting for help, and this is what really sucks, I don't blame them. And I don't, I can't say I wouldn't do the same, but the nervous energy, they ended up cleaning Dr. Cheryl's home thinking they were helping. 
Oh, no. I got my notes right here. No. Yeah. Yeah. Which, like I said, I know that that's they were a trying stressful to be situation. They're right. trying to be helpful. They thought maybe she just had some kind of emergency and they were already there. So they figured maybe they could just help straighten up, clean right. up. Right. So by the time she got done with the emergency or yeah, whatever exactly. that may be, she wouldn't have to stress over that. She could just go home and sleep. Exactly. Exactly. On that same day, on January the 5th, Bartlett Police Department arrived and they immediately began that investigation. The, you know, the pager and the cell phone being left and the insulin being left were immediately concerning to them because one important fact was Cheryl was on call that weekend at the hospital. You know, I almost asked you that. I almost asked you that because I was just curious because, I mean, she could have gotten a phone call or some sort of emergency and if she was on call i don't know i don't know how that works yeah well she was on call that weekend but her cell phone and pager were left behind that's odd so obviously like i said this was concerning to the police and that's when you know during the investigation they ended up obtaining the phone records and that's when they found the call through the records that happened at 158 that I had mentioned earlier. The payphone. Yes. They confirmed that Cheryl answered and that it was from a payphone. I'm sorry. It was about half a mile away from Cheryl's home. Is there any video that you know of? I'm getting to that girl. Um, It could not be determined who placed the call. So... Bartlett Police Department, uh, Detective Kinley and Steve Johnson, they, you know, went to the store, the gas store, gas store, (laughs) you know, where you, where you get your gas at, (laughs) the gas store, the gas store. And they, you know, attempted to dust the pain, pain. I quit. (laughs) (laughs) Look, it's, it's been a minute. We had to pause. Nicholas dropped really, really low. Type one mom problems. There you go. So we're a little flustered. Just. Bear with us. Um, To dust the payphone for prints and attempt to view the security footage from the store. Unfortunately, they weren't able to find any usable prints and the footage was also a bust. Apparently, it doesn't really say specifically, but the source that I used, um, which I'll link all my sources in the show notes, um, one of the sources said that it could have been either due to poor quality or the caller was out of range of the working cameras. Mm-hmm. And now remember, you know, this was 2002. So poor quality is very like, is it's very likely, very yeah. likely because security footage and camera recording equipment is not what it is today. Um, so I'm while- surprised it was in work in order. Cause we hear all these cases all the time and the cameras aren't on. Right. Right. Some of them use it as like a diversion and yeah, you know, it's not actually really working, but it's there kind of like a scarecrow. Yeah. I yeah. Guess. yeah. Uh, so while all of this is going on, um, her family and coworkers, they started making and passing out flyers, um, you know, saying, you know, looking for Cheryl and or her car, which was a 2001 dark blue Audi. The hospital that she worked at uh, established a reward fund. And it started out at $10,000 for information leading to the safe return of Cheryl, Dr. Cheryl Pearson. So interestingly enough, on January the 7th, 2002, which was two days later, around 7 a.m., her car was found. 
It was discovered at the Quail Ridge apartment complex, which was approximately one mile north of Cheryl's home. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen this apartment complex, but I have, and it does border a wooded, a heavily wooded area behind the apartment complex. And so um, they suspected the car had just been dumped right before it was found because this area, along with the woods that the wooded area that was between Cheryl's home and the apartment complex had been previously searched and they never found the car and there was no sign of the car before now. Oh, wow. So once they found her car, they, you know, they began to search it in the trunk. They found her grizzly tickets from the game that she had attended on the fourth, her car keys, a medical bag, which was presumed to be used as a purse because, yeah. I, when I go to work, I have a bag that I just um, stuff all of my snacks, my stethoscope, my pen light, everything that I could use for the day, um, right. blood pressure cuffs, stuff stuff like that. I stuff all of that in one bag because... Right. I don't want to carry two bags. Right. <laughs> so, And then uh, inside this medical bag, they found some of her personal items and then $140 in a First Tennessee banking envelope. Uh, this... This discovery and this search automatically makes the police focus turn towards foul play. Apparently, they searched the car inside and out. Of course, they dusted for fingerprints. There was not a single fingerprint found on the car inside or out. Neither was Cheryl's fingerprint. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, so that, It had to have been cleaned because, I mean, this was her personal car. Right. Her fingerprints should be all over it. Exactly. And that's what, you know, the detective said that it had to have been, it was possibly cleaned or detailed after use and before being dumped because not a single fingerprint, fingerprint not even Dr. Cheryl's, was found wow. on or inside the car. Uh, they uh, they ruled out robbery gone wrong because of the cash left in the trunk. And then they also interviewed uh, some of the residents at the apartment complex asking, you know, if they had seen or heard anything. And none of them saw or heard anything unusual, nor did they see the car being dropped off. Um, so my question is, if this is a robbery, why did they leave the money? Well, that's they what they that said money? is they ruled out robbery gone wrong. Oh, they ruled it out. Yeah, Sorry. They, they ruled it out on the preface that, you know, the cash was left in the trunk. Yeah, it's odd. So I wonder when she pulled that cash out. I, you know, that's a good question. I didn't really see. It mm -hmm. didn't really say when it was pulled. I don't know if there was a, you know, like an ATM receipt or like, you know, a receipt you get from a teller when you right. go to a, a withdraw money. It didn't really say. But that's actually an interesting question. I wish I knew the answer to that one because... I feel like if that was there, maybe that maybe right, that would have right, been stated. Because, I mean, if this was a supposed robber, which I know they rolled it out, but, I mean, they could have pulled out more money and then left that there to make it not seem like it was. You know what I mean? Like, could have went to the ATM, pulled out. Who knows? I mean, she was a doctor. I don't know. Right. I don't know what her sort of income had looked like at that point. But I mean, they could have pulled out like eight hundred dollars out of the ATM yeah. and then left that, so it made it look like that yeah. wasn't the case. I don't know. What do I no, know? No, that's that's definitely an interesting question. I'd love to know the answer to that. I feel like if they found some kind of like withdrawal receipt, maybe that would have been mm -hmm. stated, I mean, or maybe ATMs that's something they're have... keeping close to the chest. 
maybe, you know, oh, yeah, as true. holdback information. I true. don't know. Because, I, mean, I mean, this case is still under investigation. Yeah, it's it's a cold, unfortunately, it's a cold case. Yeah. Um, but I'm not, I'm going to keep, uh, we're going to get there. We're going to get okay. there. So, okay. so the following this, you know, sometime in 2002, police uh, obviously interviewed her friends, the ones that last saw her that night, Andrea Fox and the unidentified one. And Cheryl was dating somebody, so she had a boyfriend, and he's also unidentified, so I don't know yeah. his name. And they interviewed them, you know, asking information. Um, and one name kept popping up during these interviews, and we'll get to that in just a second. But uh, the friends were cleared, and so was the boyfriend because he apparently he had a solid alibi. Okay. So the one name that kept popping up was Charles Chuck Hildreth. Charles Chuck Hildreth was the brother-in-law of Dr. Cheryl Pearson. He was married to her sister, Lorinda, the one who was yeah. planning to drop off the kids the next morning. Now, during these interviews, um, like I said, his name kept keep pop. His name kept popping up, and uh, police discovered that Lorinda was actually the beneficiary to a one hundred and fifty thousand dollar life insurance policy that was on Doctor Pearson, and at one point they officially announced. Charles Hildreth as a person of interest, but not as a suspect. Um, and they cited it was inconsistencies in his story. Apparently at the time of Dr. Pearson's disappearance, he was out on bond and he was facing armed robbery charges, which he was hmm. eventually convicted. So he had a, he had a criminal criminal record. Yeah. Eventually he was cleared of suspicion because police couldn't find any connection to Cheryl's disappearance. Couldn't find any connection between Charles and Cheryl, like in her disappearance. Yeah. And it said that he had an alibi. I would really like I to. I would like to know. I do too. I would really like to know how that interview went and like what. what because was it wasn't about... really like clear what his alibi was. And nor was it clear on the boyfriend's alibi either. Yeah. But. I wonder if that. So was the brother-in-law and the sister still together? Even mm -hmm. with the criminal history and all of that. I, I didn't know if they were separated. I think so. I okay. think so. I'm not. 100% sure on that because it doesn't really yeah, say go into detail um, it might be a minute detail that doesn't matter but yeah. I mean I don't know I'm just trying to get a right I, I mean that's a good question I, I just don't know the answer to that one right now um, but yeah apparently he had an alibi I'm not sure what but so he was never named as an official suspect and it's important to note that Cheryl's parents also believed that he had nothing to do with it as well. Um, so police continued their investigation. They did, they conducted several physical searches and each time they, unfortunately there was still no evidence of what might have happened. 
So we're going to fast forward to January the 5th, 2006. This was the four-year anniversary of the disappearance. Uh, Cheryl's case was actually featured on the TV show Without a Trace at the end of the episode, along with other real-life cases. Um, You know, I'm assuming they were trying to, you know, garner some kind of leads, you know, get it back out there because this is four years later, nothing. And unfortunately, the airing did not produce any new leads. In March 2006, the reward fund had increased to $41,000. They had the hope of, you know, that a larger reward maybe, you know, might garner some new leads, you know, more money, people might start talking. Which it's sad that that's what it takes for people to start talking, but we won't get into that. So sadly, by 2009, there was still no movement, no new leads, no evidence, nothing. And although the family tried to hold on hope, they eventually accepted the fact that something terrible had happened and that she more than likely was not coming back. So in accordance with Tennessee law, she was legally declared dead. And this is this is a sad note. The following year, in 2010, her father actually died. And I couldn't find what, but I think it was natural causes or yeah. medical complications. I'm not totally sure. But so her father ended up passing away and still not knowing what happened. Now, later in 2010, in December 2010, remains were discovered in Lakeland, which is about 10 miles away from Cheryl's home by some hunters. The skull, there was a skull and some bones that were discovered and they had appeared to have been there for a while. Uh, Forensics initially, you know, thought that they did not match those of a black female. And then on December 6, 2010, it was confirmed not to be Dr. Cheryl Pearson. Fast forward three years later, um, finally there was a new lead that brought some, that potentially brought some hope to the case. Apparently, an inmate, and this inmate is unnamed, an inmate had reached out to the Bartlett Police Department, referring them to another fellow inmate who said he has knowledge about what had happened. Uh, this inmate produced a letter providing details that had tied Cheryl's disappearance to some women that were located in Georgia. Allegedly, the women had information about what happened that night to Cheryl. So, of course, they follow up on this lead. This is 2013, 11 years later. And following up on that lead, the lead, unfortunately, was a bust. It produced no new information and no new results. I'm not sure what they found out there or found when they followed this lead. Uh, I wish I knew. Yeah. But apparently it led to nothing, sadly. So in March 2013, a Facebook page was created titled Dr. Cheryl Pearson Missing Person. It was actually created by a former police department, former Bartlett Police Department investigator who had taken on Cheryl's cold case a few months before he ended up leaving the BPD for another job with another agency. Um, The page is public and it was dedicated to resolving Cheryl's case. Uh, In one of the posts, he put that even though he no longer works for 
the BPD, he pledges to pass on any tips and information uh, to the current lead detective and team investigating. One of the most recent posts from this Facebook page is from January the 5th, 2018. And it says, trying to think of a word to describe this date of how many years Cheryl has been away from us. I thought of the word anniversary, but that mostly describes a happy occasion. Being without your daughter, sister, aunt, or loved one for so many years, anniversary is definitely not a word that I would choose to use. Who am I, you may ask? I took over Cheryl's case when the case was cold and nothing had been done to try and find out what happened to her. For 13 years, no one had worked the case. I had been with the department for 24 years and 18 of those as an investigator. I don't blame the department. Life had moved on and there were no leads. My thinking was there were no leads because no one had worked the case, and that was about to change. And after getting approval and support from my superiors, I went to work. I felt the only way to gather leads or spark interest was to shake the bushes, re-interview witnesses that had last seen her, interview family, former patients, and possible suspects. One thing I learned from the beginning is the family were totally turned off by how the investigation had begun. Evidently, the lead investigator and a couple other investigators conducting the interviews had treated the family and all involved as primary suspects in the investigation. Instead of interviewing, the investigators chose to interrogate everyone, being very accusatory during the interview process, therefore alienating everyone. As you can imagine, no one wanted to talk to the police. When the family realized my sincere desire to find out the truth and treat them with the respect they deserved, I received their total cooperation, something we definitely needed. When I took over, when I took this case over, one of the first things I did was start a Facebook page, the one you see here. And unfortunately, since money talks, I pushed the reward that had been offered. $41,000 is definitely not something to sneeze at. After starting the Facebook page and after the case had sat dormant for over 13 years, we started getting tips, credible tips, tips that led me and a fellow investigator several states away interviewing folks who have information that could give the family closure. I re-interviewed the witnesses, family, and went through all the paperwork from the beginning. While interviewing the family, I realized real quick that they had zero respect for me or the police department I worked for. I had to reestablish a relationship and rapport with everyone involved. It's something when you approach a witness in a missing person case and you're met with hostility and aggression only to realize even though they have never met you, they have been treated with the utmost disrespect by your fellow investigators years earlier. Again, not blaming the whole police department, just a few inexper inexperienced investigators. I love my old police department and have the utmost respect for 98% of them. I noticed that the PD recently gave a statement regarding the case. Yes, I could list names of those who may, be po who may possibly have knowledge of what happened to Cheryl. Unfortunately, there isn't enough evidence to bring those responsible to justice without an eyewitness coming forward and validating what we think may have happened. Just know that I monitor this site and forward any information that I receive from this page. The investigator on this case is Detective Becky Anderson. She is a very good investigator and can be reached at 
385-5565. Any information sent to me will be forwarded, forwarded to her as well. I pray for Cheryl's family and friends. I truly hope Miss Hazel knows the truth soon. God bless each and every one of you. Retired investigator with the Bartlett Police Department, currently a senior agent with the state of Alabama. Dr. Cheryl Lamont Pearson's missing information from the Charlie Project, which is a site dedicated to helping solve missing persons cases. Um, She's been missing since January the 5th, 2002 from Bartlett, Tennessee. She is a black female. Uh, She was 37 years old at the time of her disappearance. Her height and weight are 5'6 to 5'7, described at 160 pounds. Medical conditions include type 1 diabetes that requires insulin for it, and she left her insulin pump and other diabetic supplies behind. Uh, Distinguishing characteristics are as follows. African-American female, black hair, brown eyes, uh, a long, dark-colored birthmark on the side of her face, and she also has a small sixth finger on each hand. Her ears are pierced. And that is the case of the still-missing and unsolved Dr. Cheryl Lamont Pearson. You know, it's always sad with the cold cases, um, and especially it being kind of local, mm-hmm. you know, um, and her being a doctor. Like, you know, know, probably, you know, she probably gave back to her community. And mm-hmm. um, so I'm sure, you know, she's a well-known person. Absolutely. And for her to nobody know anything is is absolute madness. And this case was actually because I, once again, I was researching another case, which I'll eventually get to, I think. But I felt that this one was a little more important just because it's still unsolved and nobody knows you know what happened um this case was suggested to me by a lady i work with who actually dr pearson was her children's pediatrician at one point so of course reading through this case i was like you know i i wanted to do this one to hope maybe stir up some more leads i I mean i don't know to you know bring it back to the spotlight because i'm sure her family and friends are still you know the feeling of not knowing has got to be just yeah horrible but yeah so I hope everybody got something out of this and I hope that if you know anything or if you have any information please contact the Bartlett Police Department uh, I would really hope I'd, I'm not sure if Miss Hazel her mother is still alive I know that her father passed away but I hope that you know this case and her family and friends see some kind of adjustment, justice, or some kind of closure, you know, soon. Yeah, I agree with that. So thank you guys for joining us again. And we hope that you keep keep on listening. And yeah, we will see you next time. All right. Bye, guys. Bye. If you have any information regarding the disappearance of Dr. Cheryl Pearson or any information that could lead to the recovery or solving of this case, please contact the Bartlett Police Department at 901-385-5558.